Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to conservation and stewardship of the natural world. I'm Dylan Banyasco. I'm a landscape architect, outdoorsman, and conservationist. I'm learning from exceptional people who are working to improve our relationship with land in one way or another. Subscribe on your preferred podcast app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Stephanie Williams, her friends call her Steph, is a mountain guide, field biologist, and co-founder of the Cascades Wolverine Project. She has over a decade of experience in field science and two decades in the outdoor industry. She first worked as a guide in 2003 on the glaciers of Alaska's Wrangell Mountains. Since then, she has skied and guided in alpine wildlands of India, Iceland, Switzerland, New Zealand, China, Chile, and across western North America. I contacted Steph after seeing her recent appearance in a short film called Finding Gulo. Gulo Gulo being the scientific name for wolverines. Other names include the glutton, the skunk bear, nasty cat, woods devil, the carcajou, the quick hatch. Finding Gulo is about the Cascade Wolverine Project's efforts to monitor and share images of these elusive creatures in the Cascade Mountains as they attempt to recover in parts of their historic range. The film shows the immense effort that goes into finding them and the people who are passionately trying to support their recovery through field monitoring, storytelling, and backcountry community science. We talked about what initially drew Steph toward living and working in the mountains and the formative experiences that led to her backcountry skiing career. We covered wolverine behavior and characteristics, Steph's monitoring work as a field biologist, and finally, the recent film. You can see the short film online at cascadeswolverineproject.org, it's really concise, beautiful, and worth a watch, and you'll get to see Steph and her element trying to track down these critters. If you're new to the podcast, welcome and thank you for listening. All I ask is that you please take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen. It takes less than a minute, and it really means a lot to me. Thanks. Here's Steph. I've got Steph Williams here on uh, Zoom. Steph, how are you doing? Real good. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks so much for doing this. I uh, I reached out after seeing your film about wolverines and just want to talk all about them. Great. Yeah, I'm looking <laughs> forward to it. Thanks so much for, for having me. Yeah, yeah, of course. No, these are some of my favorite episodes are just sort of a, a deep dive into, like I did one about black-footed ferrets. And um, I just think it's really fun to kind of focus on one species rather than like trying to tackle, you know, broad environmental issues. These are always fun. So, yeah, before we get into that, though, um, and the film, which I want to ask you all about, can you tell me a little bit about you and, and where you are now and where you grew up? Sure. Yeah, I, I live in the eastern North Cascades and have since 2001, which is kind of hard to believe. Um and I was raised in Metro Detroit, a suburb of Detroit. So kind of okay. like this interesting cornfields meet motor city zone of Michigan. Maybe you know this, but the um, the state animal is the Wolverine. Yeah, uh, I know the football team mascot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There haven't been Wolverines there for a very long time. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you can say that there was like a subconscious seed maybe planted 
uh, early on. So anyway, I came out west for the landscape um, and an interest in mountains and immersion in mountains and subsequently worked in the mountains a variety of jobs, mostly in the outdoor industry for the last 20 years. And then um, returned to school to study biology, natural science, and have worked in field biology for about 12 years. Okay. So the common thread there is, is that I consider, you know, myself a mountain professional, sort of broadly speaking, with these specific skill sets in uh, mountain guiding and in field biology in the mountain ecosystem. What brought you out there? What was that initial pull out to the West? Because I had it too. I'm just curious what yours was. <laughs> yeah. Well, this this will probably resonate uh, with you. It, you know, just the this sort of majestic, adventurous um, life that I imagined relating to the mountains out here. You know, I really uh, it love to to I love movement in, in beautiful natural spaces um, and the the layered kind of stories that come with learning and about mountains uh spending time in mountains learning who lives here uh you know wolverines included obviously so yeah it, it's the immersive kind of connection with the landscape and I, I don't know when that seed got planted initially but um since as you know long as i can remember i've been drawn toward these big beautiful snowy mountains in particular but also the desert uh, landscapes um, that are, you know, really mostly not dominated by civilization. So I, you know, I think there was an equal push and pull, you know, just spending so much of my childhood in and near Detroit, Michigan, um, the landscape there is, uh, is just so, uh, there's such a heavy hand from humans. There's so much concrete. There's there's so much uh, kind of at least this is in my memory. This would be in the 80s and 90s, but there was there was this real um, kind of like almost like oppression of the landscape. You know what I'm saying? So like yeah. a lot of arson in the in in Detroit. So it, a lot of uh, neglected buildings and obviously. Ne neglected natural spaces there. So I think there was like a push away from that landscape um, and a pull towards something really spectacular. It, it It's kind of a bit of an extreme, right? To go from Detroit to the North Cascades. Uh, but that's, that's basically what happened. I get it. And when you talk about the the just sheer amount of development that was kind of similar for me as well. I was living in uh, Texas before I moved here and just the sprawl would drive me insane. And it's kind of, it feels endless. And, and I watched it grow throughout my time living there. And as a designer, the, just the strip mall development type just kind of had me pulling my hair out and coming out to the West. It's like, the rugged topography constrains a lot of that for you. So you can't really sprawl out here. There's You can develop valleys, and that's about it. I don't know. It's just it's a much more pleasant environment for me as well. Um, so were you skiing? Were you going out from Detroit, going out to the west and skiing? 
was it like pop culture? Like what initially, I guess, got you interested in, in this lifestyle that you're now living? You know, I, at some point in my early teens, oh, I guess I was a preteen. You know, I, I first started skiing at 10 years old and that was a very vivid moment for me in Northern Michigan. You know, there was probably 300 vertical feet of relief, but that was huge <laughs> relative yeah. uh, to where I grew up. And, um, so I knew that there was something really magical about sliding around on snow in, a, you know, an Aspen forest in that case. And uh, that I felt just completely saturated, like my senses were fully engaged and totally saturated <laughs> in this yeah. winter environment on skis in snow. It felt both like um, really familiar and also really spectacular. And so I was lucky that there was a ski school bus from my high school that would bring us to a reclaimed garbage dump every <laughs> weekend for five weeks during winter. And in that cold, wicked cold, humid cold, Michigan cold, oh yeah, uh, those winter nights, we would just ski our, our hearts out. And um, so that was a tool that I had. Uh, obviously, gives you the ability to be in the mountains during winter. Um, a, a cousin had invited me out to uh, Mount Hood, uh, two cousins. They lived in Portland. And so I saw powder snow, deep powder snow in mountains for the first time when I was 16. Uh, and I went to the Rockies with another family member, a cousin, and saw the, the Rocky Mountains of Canada for the first time when I was 17. Um, and so... So yeah, through through that from 10 years old on, basically, I was like, okay, I know the snowy mountains are cool and I want to be there. And yeah. then through family, I was introduced to these spectacular wildlands out west. And so that's that's what I knew. I was like, okay, now I gotta when I leave home at 18, I gotta go to the west to try to be in this place as often as possible. And I knew how to ski, so I picked up a job as a ski patroller. Um and and then started guiding as well. So that was, those were kind of the stepping stones. Gotcha. What is the guiding like? Cause I was looking through your resume and you've kind of been doing this all over the place for a while. It looked like Alaska, uh, different places in, in Europe and Asia, maybe like, what is that? Are you taking people on multi-day backcountry excursions or, or what's the deal there? Right. So initially the first guiding job that I landed purely because I happened to be like um, uh, uh, an available, healthy, young, <laughs> naive person in Alaska, <laughs> uh. was up on a glacier um, in the Wrangell-St. Elias National Park. So just through wanderings around and living out of my car, I landed in this small town in, in Alaska. And I was like, okay, I got to get skills. How am I going to get around in these mountains? How am I going to afford to do it? And so guiding was a way to get those skills, to actually have a purpose, to have a job <laughs> and to sure. um, to be able to afford something that can be quite expensive in the beginning to acquire all of this, not just ski equipment, but mountaineering equipment. Um, so so that kind of put me in a very wild place. I was in ski patrolling professionally in the Cascade Mountains of Washington State. And that combination of being a professional ski patroller and uh, having a baseline skill set in glacier travel allowed me to 
backcountry ski guide in Alaska initially. And so this was based out of a, an incredible operation, um, Ultima Thule Lodge, where a fellow ski guide uh, or fellow guide at the um, St. Elias Alpine Guides, where I worked in McCarthy, Alaska, was working as a ski guide. And I ended up falling in love with that guy and marrying him okay. <laughs> 19 years ago. <laughs> and so I joined him ski guiding in this, um, in the Wrangell St. Elias, which is our largest national park, five mountain ranges within the park, no ski areas, right? So the way that we guided people was that we would be flown out in a bush plane, landed on a glacier, and then you ski tour. So you're skiing uphill with your skis on. And you've got wow. traction underneath that you can remove. And they're called skins. Yeah. So so that's that's kind of how I got into this very niche um, world of backcountry ski guiding, um, which certainly up in Alaska and also places that I've worked in the Cascades, I've worked in Japan, uh, I'll be ski guiding in Norway. Uh, it's also helpful to have a mountaineering skill set to be a mountain guide because you could be... Um, uh, you know, in glacial terrain or very steep terrain. Um, and so it, combining mountaineering with skiing is, is, uh, is, is what I do. And that's kind of how I got into it. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've done a bit of snowboarding myself, but I've never ventured into the back country and I just feel like it's perilous and <laughs> I don't have the skill set. Like I don't know how to read, avalanche shoots i don't know um how to plan for just unknown weather conditions and and the cold can make a coward of anyone so um yeah i'm pretty like <laughs> i don't know i would love to to learn a little bit more but um it seems it like a good way to die <laughs> well you know and you have something that a lot of people may not have which is like a really good self-assessment because it it's hard to oh, know what you. you don't know <laughs> You know, and I, I'm definitely like a trial by fire type of learner and and have been, I, I think, my entire adult life. So it's good to be aware um, of, have some vague awareness of what you don't know, because there are a lot of things to consider. It's a very challenging environment uh, and it's very rewarding. Um, it, it gives you access to, I mean, the first place that I, in time and thing that I was doing when I became aware of Wolverines was while ski touring. So this was not in the ski area. This was just out uh, ski touring in the Cascade Mountains. And we came across tracks in the snow. And, you know, like your initial impression of the winter landscape is that it's kind of desolate, right? It's this harsh right. environment. There's not that much life. And then you start to tune into things like, oh, well, there's resident birds and, oh, there's tracks in the snow and there is life. Life is happening. Things are happening in this incredibly um, harsh landscape. And so that's, you know, I came across these tracks in the snow. I was skiing with my husband, Drew. I was like, what are these tracks? He's like, those are Wolverine tracks. This must have wow. been in 2004. They were as big as my hand <laughs> and oh, they man. were going directly up the mountain that we were skiing so it's like we're sharing this landscape with this animal and of course i thought it was a much bigger animal than a wolverine actually is wolverine's like the size of a small dog you know so like 20 right. to 40 pounds uh but they have outsized feet it helps them float in the snow like a snowshoe or a ski so they're completely adapted to a snowy environment 
And so, you know, there's a bit of a, you know, curiosity that's triggered right away, you know, where I was just only maybe four years into traveling in the mountains during winter on skis. And we come across, you know, a, another another creature out here doing something kind of similar to what we were doing, uh, which is really <laughs> inspiring and amazing and kind of makes you want to learn more. Is that what... So, so you then, so that was 2004. When did you actually found the Cascades Wolverine project? That happened. So yeah, there was a, a, a few different kind of um, events that happened between then and t- 2017, which is when, when I founded along with my colleague, my friend, co-founder, Dave Moskowitz, mm-hmm. uh, founded Cascades Wolverine project. Um, I had, been working as a professional ski patroller and as a guide for about a decade. And, you know, just like you're saying, Dylan, the mountains are perilous. I had a lot of friends and colleagues um, have early deaths in the mountains, uh, avalanches, accidents. um, And I had a, a reality check that, you know, this is, I'm committed to this life. Um, but there's there's a lot of tragedy um and there's more to the mountains than just playing in the mountains right <laughs> there's more going on here um so i think i just kind of you know had a had a bit of a, a reality check a very harsh one uh witnessing that drive of of my community spending as much time as possible in this very rugged hazardous environment um and thinking to myself there's got to be more going on here i have that similar drive but can i redirect it toward um something beyond just my own satisfaction in the mountains right yeah something that can kind of balance out this always pushing the edge. I love to push the edge. I love big mountain skiing. <laughs> I love rock climbing and, and alpinism. Um, but it is a little bit of a, a game, a, a gamble. Like um, eventually you're going to have an incident. So really kind of looking for a different relationship to the mountains that could complement uh, this kind of drive for adventure, of high adventure. I was like, you know, there's so much here in in natural science that I could learn that I could also be driven toward diving into um, to contributing in in that domain of the mountains. I would come across researchers in the field, like working in Iceland on a glacier. You know, I met researchers while I was guiding and thinking, oh, like what they're doing is so cool. <laughs> they're having this intimate. A challenging connection to the mountain environment. It it kind of fits all of those things that I love about being in the landscape. Um, and it's not as dangerous <laughs> what they're doing. So, you know, so in a way, I think I kind of got inspired um, to, to go back to school to figure out a way that I can match um, uh, my love of the mountains with uh, questions in uh, mountain ecology and the wolverine was kind of the perfect match yeah because i mean they're they're inhabiting those landscapes right that you're talking about they're probably one of the few animals that are really really um 
thrive in those super rugged, difficult places that you're trying to get to. So I could see that there's a natural attraction. Um, did you ever actually see one during the day in that whole time? Yeah, yeah. So very few people are lucky enough to see wolverines, you know, because of where they live, first of all, yeah. um, because they have an incredible sense of smell. So just like the opportunities for such a rare animal in in that kind of habitat, an encounter is really a, a, like a lifetime um, highlight, wildlife encounter yeah. highlight for anyone. So, you know, I'm fortunate that while I was ski guiding in Alaska, uh, we were climbing a mountain that a wolverine was also climbing. And so we got to see this animal loping across the slope ahead of us. Uh, didn't even stop and really take us in, not at least that, that we could tell. Um, and another time when um, my husband and I were in Idaho, he was working as an avalanche forecaster and I was back in school. Um, we had climbed McGowan Peak and afterwards uh, in the heart of winter in December, a wolverine crossed the highway outside of Stanley in front of us. Um, so I've had just a couple of encounters with wolverines, not while researching wolverines, only while skiing and guiding. Yeah. And that's that those encounters, like just a casual survey of friends, um, happen far more to people who are skiing in the mountains than uh, researchers, unless they're trapping wolverines, right, to color them, then right. you can have plenty of wolverine encounters. But it's really, um, there's quite a lot of luck involved with the wolverine sighting, and um, your chances are a lot higher if you're out in their habitat more frequently. So it, it tends to be recreationists that come across wolverines more than any other group. That makes sense. So that leads me to the the what are they of all this and like i guess this being an elusive rarely seen animal that's uh very sparsely populated now in the lower 48 i think most of us probably have never seen one a lot of us will never see one but uh i guess if you could give me like we don't have to go into taxonomy but what are they like what are they a weasel are they a, a badger you know what's their closest relative and kind of I guess a little bit about their range and behavior. Sure. Yeah. Wolverines are a mythical creature, Dylan, and you'll probably <laughs> never see one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're, they're in the, the weasel family. So um, wolverines are a mustelid, a weasel family member, and they're related to river otters, to mink, to weasels, to badgers, uh, all of these animals uh, are in the same weasel family. And um, they are very low density species. So they occur in low population densities naturally um, because of their low reproductive rate. Females uh, don't give birth reliably every year. And when they do, it might only be two or three kits which they give birth wow. to in generally somewhere around Valentine's Day. So we're talking in the oh. middle of winter <laughs> in a deep snow den. So this tells you that wolverines don't hibernate. They're active all year round and they'll be active uh, during the day and during the night. They may not sleep very long hours. So they might be sleeping three, four hours and then on the move again within these huge territories. So females Man. have slightly smaller territories than males. 
there might be two females within a male's territory. That male's territory might be somewhere around 250 square miles, potentially, um, but it depends quite a lot on the terrain. So perhaps smaller um, territories um, in the southern extent of the range here in uh, the lower 48, and perhaps larger territories up in the Yukon in Alaska in, uh, in, within tundra landscapes. So it, it, it varies, but yeah. the point is, this is a small animal with a very large home range, which they require to get the, the enough food, especially through winter, right? Because they might be scavenging animals that haven't made it through the winter. They might be actually hunting um, caribou way up north uh, during the winter, oh, wow. which is impressive. The During um, the winter, they might be scavenging animals that have perished in avalanches. So like uh, mountain goats or sheep. Oh my gosh. And wolverines have the ability to smell through many meters of snow, which is incredible. And dig out. I mean, they've got these large feet, like we were talking about earlier. They also have fairly large claws, which help with digging. They also help with scaling mountains. <laughs> it's like having crampons on their feet. Yeah. So, um, so that's that's kind of generally it's this is an animal that's the size of a small dog, the best mountaineer that I know of <laughs> on the planet, uh, that is active all year round. Um, and just deserves an enormous amount of, uh, respect, I would say, uh, especially For those sure. of us who are into, into mountains, um, uh, a Wolverine, um, is definitely like the OG of, of that, of that domain. I think they like in a different version of history, they could have been named Alpine badgers because <laughs> they don't look like a wolf, <laughs> you know, like it's kind of, a, they look like a badger to me, um, but you're talking about their their large range. I was reading about the last one spotted in Colorado, uh, made it down near Leadville, and then he ended up getting shot by a rancher in North Dakota, I think, or South Dakota. And I was like, whoa, how did he do that? And you hear about, you know, especially with like mountain lions just traveling crazy distances when they're outside of their a breeding uh, population, they're just looking for a mate, and they'll go to to incredible lengths. But that was interesting to hear about. I'm just thinking of all the the roads and and farms and things that this little guy had to pass through to get from Colorado to the Dakotas. Yeah, well, and exactly, and that brings up, you know, one of the the roles you could say that wolverines play ecologically is like they're they're a scavenger and they hunt, um, but because they require such large landscapes uh, in order to have sufficient food, um, they they really could be thought of as like an indicator of healthy connectivity between habitat. So like from the Cascade Mountains to the Rockies, how are you going to get through there? <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a lot of human impact. There's a lot of roadways. Um, so... It, it, these dispersing males, you know, go on these incredible voyages, uh, but they need to be able to, like you said, find a mate. And in order to form a resident population, there has to be good connectivity wherever they came from to wherever they landed. And so one of these aspects of studying wolverines is that 
where there's a resident population, that could mean that yes, there's enough food. Yes, there's uh, you know, we haven't gone past the threshold of of alterations in land use that such that they can actually get by. They're not influenced by human industry or recreation or roads. Um, and they can get connected to these other populations. They need to they need to have some genetic diversity, right? And if you only have in the Cascade Mountains, let's say 40 to 50 individual wolverines across the entire Washington Cascade Mountains, which is oh, that's it. population estimate, you're you're gonna have a bit of a a bottleneck there genetically, unless these animals can get well north into BC, to the Coast Mountains, to the Columbia Mountains, to the Rockies. They they do need to be able to move around. Um, uh, mm. And when you have a resident population, which we don't have, you don't have in Colorado at this point, uh, but we in the Cascades, it's it's a sign that okay, this is a place where these animals could continue to recover. Which I you know we haven't talked about why they need to. Re- yet which is a big part of their their story folks i gotta talk to you about magic mind i've been taking it for weeks and i'm really finding it helpful for increasing productivity and focus it's a blend of nootropics adaptogens and matcha that gives you a sustained calm focus without caffeine jitters i've gone from three cups of coffee to one i'm able to sit and focus for longer periods of time and i don't feel depleted or dehydrated by the end of the day The matcha has compounds called catechins that slow your body's ability to absorb caffeine, so it's like an extended-release version of coffee. L-theanine reduces stress, so you avoid the cortisol dump and subsequent crash. Other ingredients like lion's mane, ashwagandha, and cordyceps mushrooms reduce inflammation and support immunity and energy levels. It's good stuff with real healthy ingredients. I really started to notice a difference and reduced dependency on coffee, after taking it regularly for about a week. So for long-term benefits of focus and reduced stress and inflammation, consider a subscription package of Magic Mind. It comes in a cool little carton with individual servings. I keep it in the fridge, and I take one after breakfast with coffee. Try it for yourself. You can go to magicmind.co landethic to get 40% off a subscription or 20% off a one-time purchase for the next 10 days using promo code LANDETHIC20. magicmind.co landethic Promo code LANDETHIC20. So, I mean, like, habitat fragmentation from human development is obviously applicable here, but there's also, it seems like, other challenges for, for wolverines in particular. You know, the, the landscapes they inhabit, they, they need a lasting snowpack, right? They need um, these these rugged, mountainous, alpine terrains that you would think are kind of safe from humans, but, like, what are, what are threatening these um these animals and i guess historically what what reduced their population in the cascade really across the lower 48 um particularly in the 1930s wolverines were lumped in with all other predators um as uh as vermin right like so an animal that might take down deer or sheep depending um on on what part of the west you're talking about it was considered, um, you know, a positive thing to remove this predator from the landscape. And, I, uh-huh. you know, likely uh, settlers uh, had no idea how few wolverines, it didn't have any kind of conservation ethic, right, around wolverines. Um, and so it, it, 
could have been that wolverines were not a primary target, but were poisoned along trap lines um, set for all predators in general, wolves in particular. So, so unwittingly, wolverines were extirpated, killed off entirely from the Cascade Mountains uh, by maybe the 1930s, somewhere in there. Um, okay. But some remained across the lower 48. Uh, and certainly enough remained in British Columbia that they s began to slowly recolonize their former habitat. And we're not exactly sure when and how that happened, but over the course of decades, we're talking about. So that in the 1990s, there were, you know, some sightings happening in the Cascades. And then by the early 2000s, there was state and federal motivation to actually learn something to, about wolverines coming back into Washington state's Cascades. So wolverines are recovering. There are more and more wolverines detected through um, citizen science, through programs like ours. There was a federal study for a decade actually live trapping wolverines and collaring them and getting a lot of rich data on their whereabouts and how they've used the landscape. So now we know that, you know, and now there are wolverines down at near Cascades Carnivore Project is doing really amazing research in the South Cascades, especially around awesome. Rainier. So we know that they're recovering, but not with any assist from humans. They're doing it on their on their own, uh, which is kind of marvelous. <laughs> it's like one yeah. of the conservation stories that is really um, hopeful. This is a really resilient animal, uh, but there's there's quite a lot of damage that we can do. And there's some, you know, assistance support that we can provide uh, for wolverines as they recover um, back to the Cascade Mountains at the southern extent of their range. So a couple of questions there. In terms of um, continued threats while they try to recover, I guess, what what is an impediment to them? Is it ski development? Um, what are the, you know... What are the things that are making it difficult for them to recover? And then as a follow-up, what are the most helpful things that we can do? Is it transplanting individuals to help with genetic diversity? Like, what are the goals, I guess? Yeah, you know, it, it the most direct impact to Cascade Wolverines right now is getting hit on the road, to be honest. Oh, wow. So, um you know, like you were talking about habitat fragmentation, we have major highway systems running across the Cascade Mountains, effectively like um, uh, bottlenecking species, so interrupting connectivity. And so projects like um, wildlife underpasses and overpasses are really important and are happening, but uh, there could be more work there. So increasing connectivity, particularly across roadways, um, would help wolverines. Those uh, are surprisingly effective. Um, looking at the data on those, I mean, you would think like, oh, animals just will cross where they cross. But it turns out when we put in those those crossings over the highway or under, um, it's pretty amazing how many animals actually choose to use that. It's yeah. a helpful argument for the enormous cost of building those. <laughs> Right, right. It's it's not a small thing, um, but the obviously the cost of of losing biodiversity is is incalculable. Really, like we can't right. we can't put a price on that. But you're right. It, it it to get everyone on board 
to get wildlife into our, our economic system, you know, is can, un, unless it's like a, a game species, uh, you know, it can be really challenging. And the wolverine is yeah. a classic example of a species that really I think of as falling through the cracks because they are so rare. There's very little connection, you know, other than curiosity potentially <laughs> from from humans. Um, and just because they're difficult to study. So we have a hard time knowing when and how much to pour resources into, into this animal. Um, so anyway, uh, so, so roadways are a big industry in general, you know, so in, in the Cascades, we're fortunate that, you know, the majority of wolverine habitat is federal land. Well, this is a mixed, this is a curse and a blessing. We could talk more about that. Um, so it, up in the mountains, and so there's a there it, there tends to be less um, impact from industry, particularly at the higher elevations, right? Unless you have uh -huh. active mining going on. Um, the downfall of wolverines inhabiting mostly federal lands is that there's no federal protection for for wolverines, and that's mostly a political decision, not a scientific one. Um, and that's a long story that could be like a whole second podcast uh, but ba basically there's like a you know close to a 30-year effort to get some kind of federal recognition of the threatened status of wolverines uh, and so far it's just been um, an unresolved uh, conflict so we're not we're not there yet um, but in the mm -hmm. long term wolverines also have other threats primarily climate change primarily like you mentioned they depend on snow the loss of snow um, over time. And, you know, by the end of the century in the Cascade Mountains, we may no longer have glaciers, you know, is one projection or, or many projections. And so that also means just like less uh, cold precipitation, right? If you're losing glacial yeah. mass. And so we may have sufficient snow in the high country, but the lowlands are going to lose snow. And that's also habitat, you know, that wolverines will will use to some extent so um climate anything that you can do to support climate action is going to be in the long run uh the most important thing for wolverines and really for uh every species including us on the planet huh <laughs> so um then recreation so land use changes we have land use change happening right now particularly in the pacific northwest where there's more and more people me and all of my friends out skiing in the mountains <laughs> uh in increasing numbers snowmobiling using yeah. the winter landscape to connect to have fun uh, to learn, to do research, but also we don't know what the threshold is for an animal that's sensitive to human impact to having us out there, particularly when females are are giving birth to their young kits in the middle of the winter and caring for these animals for their kits and trying to get them weaned, you know, by you know, by May or late April. So, so that kind of period of time, February into May, is really critical critical for wolverines to successfully rear their young. And so right now, we don't really know. There's a, been a bit of research in the Rockies, and we hope that there'll be quite a lot more research, especially here where I live um, in the Cascades, on what impact do we have as a recreational group out 
in in the mountains on wolverines um so that's yeah. that's something that could have an outsized impact um but we just we really need to learn learn more there yeah there's like where i live there are a lot of seasonal closures for elk calving um or lynx areas near near ski development and um it makes sense that the wolverines wouldn't be as well understood or studied i i do what's interesting is some of the ski the the major ski companies are um they're forced to really pay attention to climate change because it's going to affect their bottom line it is affecting their bottom line and so they're becoming um really powerful tools for for conservation and for um, monitoring climate change because they're losing ski area or their seasons are shortening. And so they're actually putting incredible amounts of money into uh, trying to protect winters, essentially, which I think is just kind of interesting because it's, um, I don't think they would take that interest if it, if it weren't going to affect their business, but uh, it's good. It is, I think, and it's a bit of a shared fate at this point because of the pressures yeah. of losing snow, um, the, the loss of snow because of climate change. Uh, whereas, you know, a decade or two decades, certainly three decades ago, wolverines uh, getting listed as an endangered species federally would impact ski the ski industry at ski areas, right? Because then they would have to take into consideration wolverine habitat for any expansion of the ski area. So historically, yeah. the the ski industry would be at odds with wolverine conservation, um, whereas, like you said, now there's a there's a shift happening, and we we need a powerful player like the ski industry to to be really looking at reality, right? It's their bottom line, but then being a force for climate action and uh, hopefully for wildlife conservation. I think you know. Also with sheep in the Tetons, with wolverines across the West, uh, unfortunately, there has been in the past this narrative of environmentalists against recreationists, let's say, you know, or business against um, conservationists. And that's yeah. really not going to help anyone any longer. Like we need all hands on deck. Um, and we need the skills of people who are tracking uh, and the winter environment, the amount of snow. We need people. I mean, that's how I was able to land my first uh, job on a Wolverine research team was because I had the mountain skills from working in the outdoor industry uh -huh. for such a long time. And it seemed like a very natural fit. But the paradox is that, you know, there was even in, to some extent today, people can feel threatened by conservation, right? Because we're so used to there being um, kind of this like heavy hand in conservation or a heavy hand from business. And we're all trying to learn now how to sh have a shared value. So in this case with the ski industry, it would be snow. Uh, and, and really try to work toward that. Well, Wolverines need snow, people need snow. Like we don't have to be adversaries. And that's really at the heart of how I can integrate what I do. Right, because there could be some moral tension for someone who relies part of my paycheck comes from taking people out into landscapes where there could be sensitive wildlife. The other part of my paycheck is from protecting wildlife and yeah. learning more about coexistence. 
Uh, and so I could view those things as um, counterproductive, but really the other way to view it is that this is like, this is just reality. Whoever's spending a lot of time and relying on this this habitat uh, it has has everyone's best interest in mind. You know, I, I, <laughs> I want people to connect with the environment. I certainly want to connect with it. Part of that connection is with the wildlife, you know, like these are our relatives, these are our neighbors, and it's absolutely in my best interest to have the wolverine's best interest in mind as well, right? That shared fate. Um, so I think we're we're kind of growing out of us versus them in the conservation world, I hope, and starting to find these kind of creative solutions of, okay, what do what do we have in common? What are we trying to work for? for who's this benefiting can it be kind of uh, mutually beneficial all around and i think in the case of conservation and science and recreation that can happen um it doesn't always happen but you know we're we're working towards it <laughs> in, in small ways uh hopefully big ways eventually it, it is happening yeah well said no that that is a, a interesting partnership natural partnership that has formed and i love it i think uh speaking of sort of recruiting people's skill sets that you mentioned earlier in the way that you got into this i noticed in the film which we should talk about you uh you guys implement some sort of citizen science is that a big part of the the project the wolverine project up there for you Right. I mean, at this point, uh, our three objectives are storytelling. So thank you, Dylan, for being a part of that. That's what we're doing right here. Um, (laughs) And and, which is really just to to kind of cultivate the sense of stewardship. Right. Um, The other part is monitoring. So we have professional monitoring with fixed stations throughout the eastern North Cascades. And what was obvious there was that we don't just want fixed monitoring, but we want mobile monitoring. And the way to do that is to get everyone on board with uh, whoever is in Wolverine habitat to report their observations. If they think it's a Wolverine track or they've Mm. encountered a Wolverine or a rare animal that could be a lynx, wolf, I mean, not purely Wolverine, but if you're looking for the rarest animal on the landscape, you might also come across some of the less rare animals. So there's kind of a a, a bonus there. So we are encouraging people to report their observations. And at this point, you know, I think we've had over 200 and well over 200 observations. Those aren't all verified wolverine sightings, but we are working on whatever, you know, the small selection that have been verified sightings are important data points what we generally get are tracks and we get a lot of sets of tracks in snow that are wolverine tracks, but there isn't currently kind of an accepted methodology for verifying wolverine tracks. So the community science is, is kind of our, it's our testing ground for developing a method that will contribute to the larger data pool across the entire research community in the cascade. So this is really exciting. We ran a test to test our methods. We've, you know, we haven't written up our results yet, but hopefully in the next year we can publish this, that it does look like you can reliably identify Wolverine tracks from you, Dylan. If you, you know, if you happen to come across them, you just take a picture in the snow, you know, straight on, looking straight on at the print above 
with some kind of reference, like a scale. If you had a ruler, obviously that's the best, but anything that we can measure afterward for, for scale. And then you take a picture of their tracks from multiple angles so we can get a track pattern. And if we have that real crisp print, it's not always that way. Um, and then a track pattern, we can get really, uh, we can get pretty confident that that's a, that's a Wolverine track. And that's important data on how Wolverines are distributed, how they're using the terrain. So um, that's a really exciting part of, of our project, equal to the monitoring and, and the storytelling um, from my point of view. That's super cool. Yeah, and, and like with the amount that they're moving around, I'm not surprised people are coming across tracks. We, we didn't talk, we talked about their behavior earlier, but I think it's so interesting that like it seems to be a an evolutionary adaptation in their favor that they're so aggressive. Like they're known for being very, uh, kind of like a honey badger, very aggressive. And I guess, is that because they're just defending like, or they're, they're scavenging and they're coming across carcasses and having to defend against whatever other predators are out there wolves and grizzlies and stuff right you know and i would i would call that tenacious that's my preferred word but (laughs) (laughs) aggressive works too i just don't want people to think that they're attacking people which we don't have any accounts other than a trapper who had a who we thought was a was a killed wolverine over his shoulder and wasn't actually other than that attack that i've read about i haven't heard of any attacks on people i have heard of a bush pilot in alaska getting sniffed awake by a wolverine as he was taking a nap out in the in the tundra so they can't they're cure, they're very seem to be very smart um very aware animals and so yes aggressive in the sense of you know if they're at a kill a carcass a moose carcass let's say and there's a, a grizzly i do also know from the same bush pilot so i don't know if these are tall tales but that he has witnessed you know this wolverine chasing off a grizzly in the end not winning Grizzly is a lot bigger than a Wolverine, but having the tenacity to try. Um, and so, yes, they're known for pretty high metabolic rate, pretty, <laughs> uh, pretty active animal, very active animal. And, and for this tenacity, which is a, a beautiful attribute to, to think about just on the conservation and storytelling uh, theme of things is that, you know, here's an animal who's recovering against all odds um, who seems to be able to stand up to challenges that, you know, we have in general, uh, are these ecological crises that are coming at us. And it, this animal is just really, you know, an inspiration, uh, that, you know, we can kind of try to embody, you know, like to yeah. do whatever, do whatever you can in the face of losing snow, uh, over this, over the next decades and losing, you know, habitat fragmentation and um, landscape use changes, uh, all of these drivers of extinction, you know, we, we still need to, we still need to try our damnedest and, and we can find a lot of inspiration in this animal actually along the way. Absolutely. Yeah. They were, when I was reading about them, it, they're characterized as a muscular solitary carnivore which is exactly how I choose to self-identify as well. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But uh, so that brings me, let's, let's talk a little bit about the film here while we wrap up. I I saw your film Finding Gulo, which is based off the scientific name Gulo Gulo of Wolverines. 
Um, can you tell me a little bit about making that film? By the way, I realized it's by Wild Confluence Media, who are the same production company that did um, Understory, which I've talked about as well, about the Tongas. So shout out to that media company. Great stuff. But uh, tell me about making this movie. Right, yeah. The, um, the movie kind of unfolded um, starting maybe t- 2018. There was a... Uh, a woman, a benefactor, actually, of a lot of Dave Moskowitz's work. Uh, and Dave had worked with Wild Confluence, Colin Arisman, at Wild Confluence to do a movie about mountain caribou. Um, so without going into all of the details, she was happy with that film. And she's like, you guys should do something else. And Dave said, well, I just started this project with a friend of mine. And so maybe there's something there. And so Colin got involved came out with us into the field to try to see if there was a story worth telling and we really wanted to him to do like a five minute movie so we could mostly get the word out and try to get more people to submit their their wolverine observations so there was this kind of mutual uh aim to to make some kind of a a movie um it took three years <laughs> there are oh, a lot wow. of bumps, bumps along the way uh COVID happened uh it turns out that my idea of a budget for a movie was a lot less than a professional's idea of a budget for a movie uh so we really needed someone to give us some kind of support financially and patagonia did that for us it was like this last minute thing okay. patagonia has been really at the heart of uh getting our whole project launch from the very beginning so huge shout out to that incredible company and everyone in their environmental department um anyway yeah. so so we did pull off a, a grant a media grant and it was you know it was just barely enough maybe maybe not quite but uh you know it's it's tricky to get filmers into the mountains up high um by boat by helicopter by snowmobile by ski and so um, I had a really fun time with that because that's my wheelhouse, you know, as a guy, you had an idea of how to get, move people around in that landscape. Um, mm-hmm. but man, that was challenging because I, I'm not super comfortable in front of a lens. As it turns out, I kind of like coveted Colin's position as he was making the story behind the lens instead of being interviewed. <laughs> I get it. It's There's okay. Yeah, I'm this getting is an over audio it. only podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> The podcast is a friendlier, kind of a friendlier experience, I think. But um, so anyway, it was a big adventure. We had a lot of fun. It was quite challenging. Uh, and then, um, and then, yeah, the, just the right editors got involved. Chris Cresci, uh, Tyler Wilkinson Ray, who who's with Wilder Studio, was absolutely instrumental. And then more and more really talented people got involved. Um, and I, it just like, it kind of makes my heart explode. I can't believe all these people wanted to tell the story about Wolverines, like in the way that they were doing from this grassroots project, uh, pretty underfunded, um, very challenging conditions to do filming. Um, and they, everyone just kind of went that, just put in a ton of effort. And, uh, and then we couldn't really, you know, and then, you know, it didn't really get that many views initially, but it got into a bunch of big, festivals like which reflects like the message that we were hoping to get across for cascades wolverine project 
And what Wild Confluence was trying to get across was that this is a story for uh, for not for, for not just skiers, not just conservationists, but it's a story for everybody, right? So they were able to take a quirky, uh, <laughs> unique storyline uh, with characters who are not natural actors um, and an animal that doesn't really like to be videoed. <laughs> and, and they could make it into something that reached a lot of different uh, audiences. So it was like, it's you know, a Vimeo staff pick, which is huge for the, in the filmmaking world. Um, so that okay. just yeah. speaks to the quality of the storytelling and crafting that the filmmakers did with it. Uh, it was in nine film festivals, including Banff. So we have the adventure component there. Um, and then also the Santa Barbara International Film Festival, which is like an Oscar qualifying film festival, which is nuts. So we had no idea that it'd even make it into such a prestigious festival. So again, that's the filmmaking part of it. And then it made it into several great environmental film festivals like Wild and Scenic and the Washington, D.C. Uh, environmental Film Festival. So this is like all the conservation research uh, branch of the story. So I'm just like beyond uh, ecstatic for the whole crew for like really not knowing that this was going to pay off. And a lot of people just sort of <laughs> donating to some extent energies and skills and talents to, to tell this kind of uh, under the radar story. Um, and I yeah. think it's really going to reach people. I hope, you know, this, we, we just need to plant more seeds of caring about wildlife in general, right. As we face so many extinctions. So like in the big picture, there's a need for this kind of stuff. But I think in particular in like the outdoor industry, we really need to drive that, that narrative that like it's in all of our best interests to care about wildlife like i don't want to hear so much anymore about people feeling the scarcity mindset like oh if there's you know like bighorn sheep i'm not going to be able to ski in this part of the tetons or if there's wolverines i'm not going to be able to do whatever x y snowmobile like that stuff is just doesn't have a role anymore it's not in anyone's best interest so so I, this is kind of a critical bridge, kind of the outdoor industry and conservation where we need positive stories like this so that it just uh, so that's in the back of everyone's mind, you know, that they're stoked yeah. on wildlife. They're they're excited to learn and support about wildlife generally. Uh, and that can just become part of our mountain culture. Uh, it's really it's yeah. really, really important. Well, it's a great film. It's really um succinct it's probably shorter than this podcast is going to be and uh i think you know i watch a lot of hunting content people going deep into the mountains to try to find whatever their target species is and um there was an interesting similarity there like obviously you guys aren't hunting these animals but they're so hard to find and you're going to such extreme lengths to get into their territory into this incredible landscape um, that it kind of shared a lot with with um, some of the better hunting films that I've seen, um, and yeah, if you just if you guys want to see Steph and and the rest of the team doing this work, it's really fascinating. You can see it for free now online, right, Steph? Yeah, you can go to you can just search on Vimeo Finding Gulo. Uh, it's available. There's a link at our website. 
actually, I think it's just embedded at our website at cascadeswolverineproject.org. It's at Wild Confluence. It's at the Wilder Studio. So it's all over the place. I'm not sure if if uh, Colin has it up on YouTube, but if it's not there, it will be there. So I think you can just kind of Google full film, finding Gulo. And, and I would love to know how people take in the whole um, tone of the movie. You know, it's kind of a, it's a kind of a nuanced thing just to like try to draw in everybody, you know, that, that we were just talking about. And so I would love to know if it does inspire people to care about anything related to Wolverine, the climate, biodiversity, mountains, uh, skiing, uh, culture in relation to the Wolverine. Like, so I hope people watch it and like, feel free to email our project email info at cascadeswolverineproject.org. And just, I would love to know if it resonates with people or feedback, like any ideas about how to keep this story moving forward. It's hard to get honest feedback. I've been asking for a while. People, um, (laughs) people only give you feedback when they're complaining about something. I find that when people like something, they don't, they're not as quick to, to feed. At least that's what I'm hoping. But um, yeah, it's, you know, I think it's enjoyable to watch people do something they love and that comes across in the film. Like you guys love this landscape, you love backcountry skiing and you love wolverines and um, that's infectious. Whether you live on the other side of the country or the other side of the world, it's still it's still a, a great story to watch. So definitely encourage people to go check it out. Really enjoyable. And uh, I'll be keeping an eye on Wild Confluence because I've really really liked both of the films that I've seen by them. Yeah. Colin Harrisman and yeah, he, he's really very talented, very heartfelt, very skilled uh, filmmaker. And so I, yeah, I, I really, I, I'm watching him too. I consider him a friend now um, after this, this journey we've been on with the Wolverine movie. And um, yeah, he's, it, he's definitely one to watch. Nice. Well, thank you so much, Steph. And uh, I'll put up some links and everything so people can find this, but really appreciate your time and um, for fighting the good fight up there. Yeah. And to you too, Dylan, this was super delightful to get an invitation to your podcast. I just started listening to the episodes and I just, I think you're really touching on very important, timely issues uh, in such a, in a wonderful style. So um, yeah, it was a real honor to be on your show thank you so much thanks yeah i'm i'm enjoying it trying to trying to keep getting better so i'm happy to have you as a part of it all right take care steph you too